Hi folks, Jack Spirico here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes, podcasts, blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back to episode 2753, Building Garden Soil Through the Winter. It was originally published on uh, October the 15th, 2020. So we did it October last year. We're going to do it October this year. And you know why? As I famously once said, and I got quoted over and over on this in the early days, this is 13 years ago, winter is coming. It always does. It always comes. Winter is coming. It always does. That resonated with people back then. I hope it still resonates today because if you were around back then, you know that I was talking about winter, real winter like we're talking about today, building soil through your winter. But I was talking about the more of the metaphor of winter, that things always happen. Things always show up at the worst possible time that knock you off your game. And the more prepared you are, the more resilient you are in getting back into your game. Um Soil, though, is something that we have lost the value of in our minds in, in the modern world, which is part of why we've, we've lost our minds. Um, it is the number one thing we export, and we don't do it for any money. We do it through neglect. It, it blows out to sea. It washes into our rivers and streams and then flows out to sea. We, by tonnage export more topsoil into our oceans than we export any other thing that goes to any other combination of countries that we're compensated for. And it's the most valuable thing that we have. It is the most valuable thing that we have as a species. I don't remember the exact quote, but somebody said something to the effect of, we owe all life on earth to six inches of dirt and the fact that it rains. Those two things. Soil is the lifeblood of everything. Franklin Roosevelt, who was a president that I'm not exactly fond of, not that I'm fond of many presidents, but particularly unfond of the man that ushered socialism into the modern world in the United States. Um, but he did say something that is very, very true. And there was something that Roosevelt was good on, and it was care of land. It really was. And... For all the socialism programs that he had, the one that he kind of gets beat up the most for is the one that went away, the Civilian Conservation Corps. And it was the one that did the most good. And it, it did see to things like soil, among other things, and, and building parks and, and infrastructure and things like that. And what he said of soil was a nation that destroys its soil destroys its soul. And obviously, when we're thinking in the concept of souls, when you destroy your soul, you create death. And that is what led to the Great Depression, partially, because it led to the Dust Bowl. And no society, no society that has built its, its society on, no civilization ever built its society on annual grain production ever survived. They all fell apart eventually. And in the end, when you read the stories in the history, soil... And crop failure played a huge role in that eventually happening. And many times it feels like that's what we're headed for here. 
Now, there's not a lot you can do generally about tens and tens of thousands of acres in our Midwest, in our breadbasket, etc. Those are lessons that farmers finally are starting to learn. I'll at least say that. But as times get harder and harder, then people make more and more shortcuts, and we get more and more problems. But in your backyard, if you have a garden, there is something you can do. You can make the soil in your garden more fertile, have more tilth, have more depth, have more microbial and biological and chemical beneficial actions, more beneficial bacteria, more beneficial fungi, more organic matter every year. No matter how much you harvest, no matter how intensively you garden, without a lot of effort, you can still make more. And you can even make it more fertile by growing more, including in the winter, growing cover crops that we'll be talking about today, like daikon radish and purple top turnip and winter pea. And, and yes, grains. There's a place for grains. I don't really believe they belong in your stomach, but they make good feed for your livestock. And they are excellent at building soil when properly used. And that's what you're going to learn about today. Again, as we rewind back to October uh, the 15th, 2020, uh, originally episode 2753, Building Garden Soil Through the Winter. And remember, you can always support us how? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Last week, I, I kind of did a surface level of the general concept of getting your garden ready for the coming winter months. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into what might be the most important and overlooked part of the process for winter. Now, that doesn't mean we stop building soil anywhere else or any other time. I'm just saying during winter is an incredible opportunity to build, to maintain, and to condition soil. And it's one of the things that's done the least. It's something that is as good as my grandfather was of a gardener. He never taught me about it. He never did it. Our gardens in Pennsylvania, and we were so blessed with kind of a low bottomland design of the property that we got away with it. And such rich, deep soil and almost no erosion. We got away with it. Beautiful temperate climate, so we got away with it. It still could have been better. When our garden season ended, we just kind of let it all go. And then every spring I was sent down there with a shovel and a line, uh, like, a, like a straight line, two stakes, make sure that they were straight, an edger and a shovel, and a pitchfork and a hoe. And I dug all the beds again every year. Not only could we have done better, but all that work could have been avoided, or at least most of it, with the techniques I'm going to give you today. But I want to I want to I want to make good on my promise. I said I would tell you how plants are pricks. How they trick us. Well, I'm going to rely on one more quote today for that. Elaine Ingham, who is probably the most renowned soil scientist in the world, especially in the world of permaculture, art, gardening, agriculture, horticulture, etc. This is a paraphrase cuz this happened in like 2014ish, maybe 13ish, whenever permaculture voices 2 was. Uh, but it stuck with me. She said something to, like this in one of her presentations that I sat through. As gardeners and farmers, you've been tricked into thinking your job is to grow plants. It isn't. The plants themselves have tricked you into doing their bidding by growing soil for them. You can't grow a plant. It's impossible. If you think you can, hold a seed in your hand and wait for it to grow. We grow soil and microorganisms, and they grow the plants. And like I said, I think that was Permaculture Voices too. And I've said many versions of it myself before that time and after that time. But when I heard it this way, 
The plants themselves have tricked you into doing their bidding by growing soil for them. It just really stuck with me. You know, they tricked us. That juicy tomato, that sweet cucumber, that blend of bitter leaves that gives us our minerals, all of it is a trick. Sneaky little pricks, those plants. Giving humans what they need so we will give them what they need. And it turns out, as you're going to hear today, that under the soil, the sneaky little buggers do the same thing. They give soil critters what they want in return for what the plants really crave, which it turns out isn't Brondo after all. Here's the short version of how plants get what they really crave. From the soil, not from us. Because we have to build the soil. A plant is in its little seed. And when the temperature and moisture is right, the little seed swells, absorbs moisture, and cracks. And a new little plant emerges. And somehow the plant knows through gravity alone to send the part that will turn green up and the roots down. And whatever plant it is begins to take its form very, very quickly. It's root form and it's above soil form. As it does so, it is able to take like a battery some of what it needs to initially grow from its own seed. Little trace minerals are in that seed, like selenium. A very tiny amount of selenium is in every seed. And if there's no selenium in the seed, generally you get seed that won't even sprout. That's one reason seed crops can fail. They are so devoid of selenium, they don't have the micro, micro, micro amount necessary for germination. But no matter how much they have in that little bank, that little reserve, it's not that much. Tiny seed is going to grow into a great plant. It must acquire its nutrients some other way. So it puts up these gorgeous solar panels we call leaves. And through the process of photosynthesis, it begins to take energy and do conversions with solar energy and all energy on our planet, one way or another, I'm not going to go into it today, but if you trace it back far enough, it's solar. There is no energy that isn't solar. I'll give you one example. But wind! No, wind is solar energy. Without solar energy, there are no winds on our planet. Anyway, as I was saying, uh, they send out those solar panels. But these solar panels are going to do a very advanced chemical process that we're not going to go into again today. You should have learned it in like fifth grade. It's called photosynthesis. But they can't do it alone. The plant must have macro and micronutrients. It must have the big three, the N, the P, the K. But it also has all these other little micronutrients. The only way it can get them, unless we do something like spray... Um, a foliar feed on the leaves where it can take some in that way, or if we put it in some sort of artificially created environment like an aquaponics or hydroponics environment, for, for most plants, the only way they can get this is through the roots that grow in the soil. So there's a certain amount of these nutrients in anything that we would actually call soil that the plant can just get. But there's a whole bunch of other things that might be there in some way, shape, or form, but the plant can't get it. This can be simple things like there's not enough moisture, there's not the right temperature, or that to get this one nutrient, I need another nutrient that I do not have access to. So, for instance, calcium and magnesium. The plant can get neither without both being present. So if calcium is present but not bioavailable, and magnesium is present, but bioavailable, it still can't get it. Bioavailable means the plant has the ability to get it directly. 
there are tons of nutrients in soil that are not directly available to the plant. They're right there, but they can't get it. I don't remember the movie, but long, long time ago, when I was a little kid, I watched the movie. It's kind of a Western type, like a modern Western. And the guy staked another guy out in a desert. So he would die of dehydration and sweat and heat in the desert. Then he took a bottle of water, put it in his right hand, and said, you'll sit here and you'll die while you hold the thing that will give you life. Now, in the movie, the guy managed somehow to break the bottle with his hand and use the glass to cut out, which was kind of foreseeable. But in reality, the plan is very, very close to that. Imagine he had set that glass just outside of his reach, just where his fingers could just barely touch it, but he couldn't get the bottle. That's what the plant is doing many times with the stuff that's in the soil. That's why we have to put so many different chemical agents on soil to get plants to grow in dead soil that doesn't have life in it. Because if there's life in it, those tricky little plants don't just trick us. They trick the soil organisms through a process called exudation. Big, giant biological word. Don't worry about it. Let's think of it as plant sweat or plant goo. So the little plant is growing, and it's like, I need some manganese. And the plant's like, I know there's manganese here. Probably in a tablespoon of average soil, there's enough manganese to grow a whole garden. You don't need a lot of it, a tiny little bit. But it's there, but I can't get it. I know. There's a little critter that lives in the soil with me that when it eats, it poops manganese. And it poops manganese in a form where I can get it. And I'll trick it. So it squirts out a little bit of exudate. And that is very attractive to the exact soil organism that that plant needs. And as long as that soil organism is around, it will migrate over there and it will consume, among other things, that plant's exudates. Again, it's like root sweat, root goo, little honey drop. And it will consume it and it will say, I'm a microorganism. I don't exactly, you know, get frequent flyer miles. There's no real reason for me to go very far from here now that I've done this. It seems like this is a good place. I'll stick around. So, like all things that consume something, it must produce waste. So it produces microorganism poop, for lack of a better word. And in that poop is a little manganese, and the plant goes, sucks it up. That's the, the short version, the basic plants of ha how plants get what they really need. There's more to it than that we could go into. Basically, the plants are making cookies and cakes for the organisms. I could explain all that, but that's it. That's all you need to know, that that process happens. And the, that process for that plant to get everything that it needs, everything that it craves, can never be succeeded by dumping Brondo on the soil, which is stupid as it seemed to uh, Idiocracy, the movie, which if you haven't seen, I don't know what rock you're under, but you should. That's worth watching once every few years just to remind yourself of how dumb, how close to that stupidity we are coming. But Brondo, to me, see, I think the people that made Idiocracy weren't idiots. They were mocking idiots, but they also were building like breadcrumbs into the storyline. I think Brondo actually represents chemical agriculture. I mean, for a real quick aside, think about it. There's no way it can possibly work without it, and if we stopped doing it, how many people would lose their jobs? Okay, anyway. So, if we want those critters to get that stuff to the plant, we have to provide an environment where those critters can live, and we have to provide an environment that has all the things that are necessary for the plants to do their job. Right. So what we're really doing is we're building habitat. You're creating habitat. So if you wanted a bunch of like ground lizards 
to live in your garden. You lived in a place where ground lizards were. There were a couple around, but you wanted more of them. You might get some rocks and build little caves. And then your little ground lizards would be like, this is a good place. And they would go hide in those caves. And they would be protected from predators. And then they would make more ground lizards. And your ground lizard population would go up. And all you, you didn't feed them. They eat bugs. And bugs are there in abundance. You just gave them a habitat with which to exist. We're not going to get into it today, but that's why things like charcoal and biochar, right, which is just a kind of charcoal, can help build soil. Biochar, again, it's just charcoal. Doesn't do anything directly to give the plant what it needs. Plant, plants not only not crave brondo, they don't cra crave biochar. But all that yummy surface area gives all those little microorganisms, nice little apartments, homes, its habitat. Everything we're doing is about making habitat for the soil food web. We want to keep it in, an, in a good state for the critters we want, what Elaine calls the good guys. That means we want fluffy, light, aerobic soil. Anaerobe, we're not going to go deep into this today, but anaerobes in general, very, very bad. Aerobic organisms, very, very good. All the things that mess your plants up thrive in anaerobic environments. All the things that make your plants happy or eat the things that thrive in anaerobic environments thrive in aerobic environments. We favor that, which we want through the building of habitat. So here's some ways we can do that to grow soil and suppress weeds in what we would call our off-season. And I want you to pick and choose what works for you. I don't want you to do all of this. No one is going to do all of this. right? And this is not given to you in any particular order. These are just all, like, these aren't even all the things you can do. These are all things that you can do. Not all the things, all things that you can do. I'm sure you can think of some other ones. But here's one. You can say, I'm done for the year, or I'm going to have a pause, even if I'm going to grow some cover crop or something like that, and I want to wipe everything clean. I want all plants taken to the ground. I want all seeds consumed. I want any pests that are there dug out and consumed. And in the words of Sepp Holzer, if you don't want to do the if you don't want to keep pigs, you must do the pig's job. Well, pigs would work for this, but most people aren't going to use it for a garden size system. But we can use livestock, especially poultry, at the end of a season to do all that. And they will scratch the surface of the soil, but they will not till it. Not in the way that we mean it when we're like and we set up a rototiller and we destroy that habitat that we've worked so hard to build. That's what rototilling does. Now, I don't hate tilling. I hate constant tilling. I own a tiller. I, I don't know if it'll run. I haven't used it in a long time. I'll tell you what I use it for mostly here. If I have to dig a hand trench, I till a line, and then I dig the trench out of that. It works really good, by the way. Just just saying. You also can make micro swales with, micro swales with tillers. But tillers have a place sometimes for that first time, or maybe even that second time of turning material into the soil. But we don't want to till it. We just want to disturb the top layer and pull everything out. Well, if we build chicken tractors that are like the width of our garden, we can just put chickens in a place and leave them there until they take it to the ground, and then we move it, and we keep doing that until the whole garden area has been done. Let me give you one piece of advice, though. If you have chickens that are normally free-range, and you build a chicken tractor for this purpose, and you take a chicken that lives 90% of its life free-range, and you put it in a chicken tractor, do you know what it's going to do? It's going to sit there miserably and wait for you to let it go. 
it is not going to go out about its life of being a chicken. The only way this is going to work really well is if you routinely tractor chickens, chickens that have grown up to be tractored. Now, what this does mean, though, timing and stacking a function is everything. So if we don't generally tractor our egg birds, for instance, if you're using chickens for this, but we do meat-raised chickens annually, great time of year to do slaughtering. It's cool enough that it's not hot and it's easier to do, but it's not cold enough to where you're miserable for doing it. So you could time a meat bird run so that you finish them over a garden. And that way you've put the meat production to bed in the fall and you've put the garden to bed or to the next phase in the fall. Just understand, because I did it, took some chickens, said we're going to tractor this area, threw them in there, and they all looked at me like, I'm like, yeah, you'll figure it out. Put some food and put some water, put some shade so they didn't bake in the Texas sun. Came back at the end of the day, they were sitting there like, you know, okay, what are you playing at, dude? Left them in there overnight. About halfway through the next day, they had not scratched one time. They are just sitting there eating, crapping, and getting fat. And I went, okay, I get it. You are not going to live this way because you know the other way. So just know that. Uh, next, you can, if you don't have livestock to tractor, you can just cut back all the plants that have finished production, and you can just chop and drop them, but most importantly, leave their roots in the ground. About the only way that I'm going to pull roots out of the ground if it is a plant that will grow back from the roots, that will survive my winter, and I don't want it anymore. It has to have all those things. It has to be able to grow back from the roots, not survive the winter, and I don't want it growing in that spot anymore. Then I'm going to go ahead and pull roots. Otherwise, why would I pull the roots out? Didn't I say I wanted to make habitat for soil organisms? So if I have a pepper plant and the frost comes and all the leaves go, I'm like, okay, that pepper plant's done. Why would I take that giant root system that's down there that all those little critters, worms, and other critters can, can eat, all those little miniature fast carbon pathways, is what Jeff Lott calls them, and yank them out of the ground and disturb the soil that way, why would I do that? Nope. Isn't it much easier to get a pair of pruners or a rice knife or a pruning knife or whatever and just right off flush at the ground. What about when I plant next summer? Okay, well, or next spring. Either the roots will have been rotted or just if it's still hard to dig there, just move over an inch or two and dig there and plant right next to it so your new plant root system goes into your old plant root system pathways where all those critters have come to live because it was dying there. So that's the other thing we can do. We just cut everything off at the ground level. Next, and again, this is not in order, but in this case it could be heavily mulch. The, the winter, when, when you get to winter, to me, you either cover crop or mulch, do both, tarp, and if you tarp, you mulch. right? I mean, like, mulching is the greatest thing you can do in your winter. There's, a, there's so many things that happen. One is, since you're mulching with organic matter, and this could be straw, wood chips are my favorite. Um, I like wood chips that are a mixture. Like, I got, I got about 30 yards of wood chips right now in my west pasture. And it's my favorite kind of wood chips. Instead of going to the, the, the place and buying them, and they're basically wood chips from a single source, like cedar or something, which is probably your worst choice for the garden, um, from tree trimmers. Because there's softwood, there's hardwood, it's all mixed. There's leaf matter, there's stems, there's twigs, there's big... You see what I mean? Like, that's nature. 
That's how nature does it in the forest. It's a mix. You mulch really heavily. So all that organic matter that's feeding your organisms. But you're also going to then have ground that's more stable in temperature. It's going to take longer for the ground to freeze if it does freeze where you're at. It will defrost sooner. And as it defrosts in your warming days, it will stay unfrozen overnight. So it will get the little critters going faster. One of the reasons you have to fertilize so much early season and not as much mid-season isn't because you fertilized early, right? Because that's been used. All that life web is now going. It's warm. Everybody wakes up like, yeah, let's go. When spring first comes, all your little soil organisms, they're like 14-year-olds that stayed up watching kung fu movies till 2 o'clock in the morning with their friends on a Saturday morning. They get up, but they don't really do much. The sooner it warms up, the sooner that same teenager that did that is like, oh, that's right, we're going to the lake today with his friends and that cute girl. And like he's up and he's going even if he's tired. That is the that is what does it for a teenage boy, right? It's, and so heat is what does it for soil organisms up until it gets too hot. So mulch aids in that. It retains moisture. If I put you in a, in a situation and dry you out, you're not going to be very active. You're going to be dehydrated. Eventually, you'll die. But if I give you enough water and hydrate you, You'll be able to survive in just about any environment as long as it's not too hot or not too cold and you get something to eat. But water, lack, so we, it does all those things for you. It moderates the climate in the soil. The temperature in the soil is often drastically different than the temperature in the air. And mulch is like a barrier between those things. And then it does so many other great things, providing organic matter, etc. Next thing you can do, you can tarp your beds. You know, when I, when I think about this, I'm like, when I was a kid, those nine huge garden beds that I used to dig every year for my grandfather, if I'd gone out and bought some tarps, cut them into just a little bit wider than the beds, out of my own money, and every year all I would have done was gone down there and taken some rocks or stakes or something and covered those beds with a tarp, my springs would have been so much easier Instead of digging the beds and picking worms out and putting them in a coffee can, I could have walked down there, pulled the tarp up, threw the worms in the coffee can off the surface, and planted the garden for the old man. Just if I had done that. Now, I think other things are a good idea. You know, I think about all those maple leaves that my grandmother burned every year and damn near set the place on fire a couple times doing it. I could have taken all those maple leaves, and I could have just run them over the lawnmower. I could have thrown them into a, into a wheelbarrow, went down there and spread them out all over the beds, threw the tarp on it. Oh, my God. Everything would have been better. And, gee, if I would have taken the horse poop from the horse across the road instead of putting it in a big pile and turning it over and over again, and I just kind of spread it out, you know, a, a clump here and a clump there and a clump here and a clump there, almost like I was planting potatoes, more like planting garlic a little bit closer together, and covered that. Well, by the time I took those tarps off in the spring, all of that poop would have been eaten by worms and all would have been broken down in the soil. And I wouldn't have had to do any work. I worked so hard as a teenager. I didn't have to. No one told me. I didn't know. I'm telling you. Tarps alone with a little bit of mulch, especially in your northern temperate climates, 
Then you're not sitting there with all that grass crawling in, crabgrass. You've knocked it all back. You can do this with thick uh, poly, black poly material. Great for this. I don't know, there's like a six mil and a little bit thicker, or the six is the heavy, whatever the heavy, like the, for putting a barrier in, in your attic, you can go grab a great big spool of it for like 30 bucks. And it's durable enough if you want to. Every year you can kind of roll up your rows, put them away, spread it back out. It'll probably last five, six seasons like that before they'll have to be replaced. And, and, and one roll of that stuff for most sized gardens is probably going to take care of like 20 years at least. So just harping and that kills all the stuff that's there that you just don't want growing during the winter. It all rots. It all goes in the soil. Soil organisms consume it. And especially in your, your winter, you know, your more winter intense climates, that black plastic, when the sun beats down on it in early spring, will start building up the warmth in the soil faster for you. Right? So that's another thing we can do. We can also plant cover crops. And I'm not going to go deep into this because I talked about it in the last show, but my favorites are daikon radish, purple top turnip, winter pea, any hardy grains like rye, wheat, triticale, or oat. Triticale is a, a, a wheat-rye hybrid. Barley would be good too, right? Anything like that. And, it, and a mix to me is best. So what I'm going to do this year, for instance, I'm going to go through first and I'm going to drill in. And when we're not talking about agriculture with a machine, we're talking about a stick and dropping seeds in. I'm going to drill in a whole bunch of daikon and purple top turnips. All right? Then I'm going to go in and I'm going to broadcast a mix of winter pea and some barley. I think barley's either bought barley or wheat. And that's going to be the bulk of material growth. And I'm going to let that grow, and I'm going to interplant some other things that I want, like some broccoli and stuff like that, that I want to produce for myself during that period of time. I'm going to let that grow up, and when the time is right, I'll cut it back, and I'll drop it. And depending on what's going on and what time of year it is and how I get off the ground with my gardening, I may or may not tarp it for a couple weeks. And then I'll plant my, my, my 2021 crops into that. And it will explode. Because what's going to happen is those radishes and those turnips are going to rot in the soil. They're going to rot. And as they rot, worms are going to go in there and be like, Oh, free food! Let's party! And they're going to eat it. And what do things do we learned earlier? Even when they're microorganisms, and now we're up to worms, we can see. What do you do after you eat? Sooner or later, poop. Worm castings are expensive. They're incredible fertilizer. They're great. Well, when you grow a turnip or you grow a radish that's going to rot in the soil, it's like having somebody make a big hole in your garden for you and then fill it up with worm castings for free. Well... For a dollar's worth of seed. Winter pea, if, you get the, if you're in a climate where they'll survive and grow through your winter, they're going to produce nitrogen nodules on their roots and add nitrogen to the soil so you don't have to. They're going to grow. Most of them are either, you know, you can either use them as human food or livestock food. And then the bulk of it, depending on what you have for livestock, like pea, you can cut that. When you're ready to, cut it above the ground and drop it for a chop and drop. 
You can also cut it and dry it like in a barn. And if you then, if you want to, you can shell the peas. And then you can take all the stuff that you didn't shell, and it's like a hay, and you can put it on your garden bed as a mulch. Or, like if you have horses or cows, they'll generally love to eat that. It's a really high-nutrient hay for your livestock. I don't know that chickens would eat it, but if you threw it into a compost pit, they'll certainly comb through it and work it in. There's a lot of ways that you can use pea that way. Most people growing a true winter pea that's designed as a cover crop will just chop and drop it. But it's up to you how you want to use it. The grain, if we don't let it set seed heads, we can just chop it and drop it. But then we're going to get a lot of regrowth. If we let it set seed heads, since it's an annual, it's done it. I have reproduced. I may go to sleep eternally now and die. I've done my bidding as a plant and I have tricked the human into providing me an environment to do so. So I have done the good thing. I have fought the good fight. I am ready to return to the soil and the earth, and so I shall now do so. That's, that's how I imagine the end of the life of a wheat plant. A bit dramatic, but I said it would make it entertaining for you today. Well, what we can do then is we can either harvest that for ourselves, but most people won't. It's not a huge amount, and I'm not big into eating grains. And I don't think grains are really great human food. But what I'm going to do with my barley, I'm going to go through, through there with my rice knife, and I'm going to just cut the tops off the barley. And I'll set it out and let it dry. And when it all dries, I won't thresh it. I'll throw it all in a cloth bag. That way I won't get wet and rot and sprout and get mold and nasty stuff like that. And then until it's gone, every day when my little birds come out, I'll throw them a handful. Free food for the birds. All the biomass goes back to the soil. It's up to you how you want to do this, but that's just another example of what you can do. A few thoughts on where to buy seeds for cover crops. There's a company called Hearn Seeds. This is a great place. There's another one called Hancock. If I don't forget, I will add them to the show notes because I haven't done so yet, and I will add a couple other places where you can get uh, cover crop seed in bulk. If you are going to be doing something like quarter acre or more or maybe even a tenth of an acre, then... You know, it probably makes sense to buy seed like that from a place where you can get it in, you know, by the pound or 10 pound or 50 pound bag or something like that. And you will pay less for it. If you have four, four by eight garden beds, then, you know, an ounce of seed goes a long way. So some of our existing MSB providers may be a good place to check for a lot of this stuff. But the other place to look is your feed stores. And you can do this for, for, for winter crops that we'll talk about in a second, too, that you just kind of want to broadcast and you get what you get out of, like carrot. Um, my local feed store uh, that I go to is a place called Russell Feeds. They have this thing that looks a lot like a card catalog from an old library. It might be what it was at one time. And it's a seed bin. And they have different seed scoop sizes. And it's like A to D. And then all the seed is priced the same for all these seeds that are in there. And I think a D scoop of seed is like six bucks or eight bucks. And a D cup of seed is probably a good, I would say it's about a third cup of volume. I've never checked, but I would say it's about what it is. That's a lot of radish seed. That's a lot of lettuce seed. That's a lot of carrot seed. So you might want to check for the small amounts that you might need to do that. Now, you might not find daikon radish like that. 
And if you ask them, I bet they sell daikon radish, but they might sell it in giant bags that you don't need. But I'm going to tell you right now, while a nice deep tillage daikon radish that grows a foot long is great, it wouldn't hurt to just plant cherry bells or something like that. If you can get a big scoop of seed that cheap and let them grow, you might even let them flower if they live through your winter and bring in pollinators and then drop them. And you might pull a few out and use them for food. And you're, I almost guarantee you they're going to have turnips, and turnips are incredible for soil building. So just realize there are more than you know buying 50-pound bags to get your seeds or going to a cover crop source to get your seed. There's a lot of other ways to do this. Next, and this is something, like I said, not everybody's going to do everything, but there's certain things I think you know everybody should do some of these things if you really want to get the most out of your garden. And this is one that I think everybody should do. This would be on the list of things you should do, in my opinion. Apply compost. At the end of your season, apply compost. If you apply a bunch of mulch in a roundabout way, you are composting. If you apply a multi-layer mulch like chopped up leaves and then wood chips on top of that, I also consider that compost. But if you have made your own or you have easy access to even commercial compost that you know is of good quality, then it would be great, it's good. You should put down like at least an inch of compost at the end of your season. And then mulch or tarp or whatever over top of that. It is going to be the easiest time to do it because once everything starts growing and you're trying to put compost down, now you're trying to fit it in between and see what I'm saying. So if you can put down a half inch to two inches of compost at the end of your season, you should do that. It's going to do all the good things. It is habitat for, for, for your soil organism. It is You're stocking soil organisms. If you have a good quality compost and you put that shit under a microscope, it's very hard to tell that you're not looking at a drop of pond water. There's all kinds of little critters going ape shit and doing head spins in there. And you, if it's properly made compost, meaning it was made aerobically instead of anaerobically, they're all the critters you want. So it's like you have a game preserve and somebody just backed up a truck and let go a whole shitload of wild pigs and stags and goats and all kinds of stuff like that, so now you have stuff to hunt. Except what you want are little servants to those little prick plants that trick them into doing their bidding. So you've stocked the pool. You've stocked the pond when you do compost. Plus you've given nutrient. Plus you've given all this other habitat. Plus you've created another layer of insulation. You've raised the soil line instead of lowered it. Everything is better because you applied compost. What kind? Conventional, worm, mushroom, anything. I don't care. I don't care. Compost. Next, a soil drench with compost tea. Carrot juice, if you don't make your own. This is the time, like, I say as far as your soil drench, this is what you want to do. Do everything that you're going to do first, then do your soil drench, except if you're going to tarp, Put the tarp on after your soil drench. Do a good, intense, heavy compost tea, garret juice, something like that soil drench after you've done all the things we're talking about today that you're going to do. Plant your cover crops, you know, at, you know, uh, tar, you know, apply your compost, do your mulching, all that stuff first, and then drench. Because that way the compost can absorb that and the, the mulch can absorb that and it can be time-released into the subsoil. Okay? And it also just gets all that biological activity ramped up again. Next, 
feed the critters. Now, a lot of what we talked about already was feeding the critters, but there's other things that we can do to mimic the plant's approach. The little soil critter was happy. He was doing his soil critter thing. He was making new soil critters. He was eating and pooping. And what the plant said was, but I need you over here. Here's some cookie and cake. Some exudate, man. Come on over here and poop me some selenium. Right? And then, not only did it happen, but the little soil critter makes more soil critters. And then they make little colonies. And all of a sudden, everybody's really happy and doing head spins. Right? Now, if we feed the critters... We do the same thing. What are some things we can feed the critters? My favorite thing to use, because it's so cheap, is sweet feed. I think it's about eight bucks for a 50-pound bag of pellet sweet feed at Tractor Supply. And that goes a long way. You want to spread that about like, imagine that it was wheat, and you were broadcast sowing it, and you would do it about twice as dense. You, you, you want to put that as close to the soil as you can. Before you, if you're going to do this, you do this before your mulch goes on. Right? Sweet feed, beautiful to do that with. Other things you can use, molasses. You can use dry molasses, or you can use wet molasses as part of your soil drench. Either one's fine. You're putting sugars into the soil so the critters can eat. Old chicken feed. Next time you're at your feed store, wherever you buy your feed from, ask them, you got any bags that like have weevils in them or it's old and discounted or whatever? And a lot of times they will. Or maybe you have like a, a bin that you filled up with feed and you forgot about it and you opened it and it doesn't smell quite right anymore and you don't want to feed it to your birds. That's fine. Anything like that. Leaves. Like I mentioned earlier, leaves are such good food for the system, and they produce leaf mold, which is badass for soil. That's why when they clear a forest, and then they go in and they plant in there, it grows. So one of the things, that, one of the many things that's in that forest soil is leaf mold. Leaf fungi. It's just, it's, it's a more fungal dominant system. And fungal dominating systems are great environments to grow plants in. Because right, the soil grows, the plant's not us. So feed them. And to me, leaves, the, you, you can just throw leaves on there. You can do it. The problem is a lot of times it doesn't quite get broken down the way that you would like in, you know, a quarter of a year. And what happens is the leaves form layers almost like shingles, and they actually kind of seem to preserve the leaves in the middle. Where if you do something like you throw them through a, a chipper shredder if you have one, uh, you just just run them over with a lawnmower. A bagging lawnmower is great, right, because they all are in the bag and you dump them out. If you do that, you get a much better breakdown and kind of spread them out. You don't want them in a big – I don't want leaves in a big, thick pile. I want a thin layer, and then I want like a wood mulch layer on top of them. All right? That's, but that's a great way to feed your, your soil organisms. And if you do this, when you go out in the spring, assuming it's warm enough, and you pull back a tarp or mulch, you're like, holy crap, there'll be worms everywhere. And soil that's full of worms will grow plants, period. Period. I guarantee you. Next, you can plant winter crops. And that doesn't mean you, you, can, you have to not do any of this. But if you live where you can grow like carrot and broccoli and stuff like that, just throw that right in with your cover crop mix. And then pick and choose what you want to use. You can start broccoli plants and put in a couple dozen broccoli plants. But you can broadcast your carrot seed. 
And if you get it for six bucks for a D scoop at the feed store, and you throw up down fifty thousand carrot seeds, and a hundred grow, you got a hundred carrots for five bucks plus you did whatever you did for your garden. See how you start thinking about that function stacking there. So you can plant winter crops. What if I've tarped? Well, I can if I want to grow broccoli, for instance, I can poke a hole in the tarp. Right? Especially if I'm using that, that plastic that's cheap. I'm not worried about a nice, good tarp here. And I can plant that broccoli plant right through there. So I can take some brassias and stuff like that. I'll probably do less if I take this approach. But I can grow some winter crops that can grow through my winter right through that tarp. I can plant them very, very early as first spring crops before I remove the tarp as well. It's up to you, and you adapt to your climate and your preferences and your timeline and everything else. You can just use tunnel covers and keep cropping. Now, I would do all this other stuff, maybe not cover crop, but I would do feed the soil, mulch, etc. Maybe tarp and kill, right? You, you, you put these together the way you want to. You assemble them as you want. But let's say I wanted to do tunnel, tunnel covers uh, for even just a couple of my beds, and I wanted to crop lettuces and brassias and stuff under the tunnel covers. Well, what I would do is I would cut back all the plants, And I'd either tractor my livestock or poultry through it, or I'd tarp it. I don't have to tarp it for the whole season. I would tarp it long enough to kill it back. Then I would do a compost layer and a drench, right, and a feed and a mulch. And then I would plant in my crops and put up my tunnel covers. And while I'm getting production, I'm also building soil. Do you want to work crops through your winter? Is it practical in your climate? I don't know. Do you want to do it everywhere? Do you want to just pick one bed every year and do it? Do you want to, if you have four primary garden beds in your garden, do you want to do garden bed A this year with a tunnel cover, B next year, C and D? Maybe that's what, you put it together the way you want, but that's how to think about it. And last, you can add worms to your garden. You can go to Mr. Jim's or any of these online sellers and you can buy a whole crap load of worms and you spread them out. I can go down to Walmart and buy, you know, 18 pack of worms for three bucks, buy two of those for every bed and throw some night crawlers down there. You do it however you want. This is a great time to add worms to your garden. They don't really like the summer in this climate. And I have noticed that my worm population every year declines through my summer. No matter how good a job I do, they just don't do well in my summers here. It's hot and even with irrigation, it gets pretty dry. So boosting that population is a great idea. We can do that through feeding them, but we can also do that through directly stocking the pool again. Some final considerations and all this that I gave you today. Again, the ideas that I gave you are not everything you can do. I'm sure you can come up with other things. Everything and he didn't say. You can even email me about it, but it won't be because I specifically decided not to put that in there. I have time limitations on my shows. But if you can come up with something else that you think will work, You can do that. If you want my opinion on it, email me, jack at survivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC in the subject line and tell me your idea, and I'll tell you where I think, yes, you should do that. I don't know. Maybe that'll work. Give it a try. No, do not do that. I did it, and it was bad, and here's why. I'll give you one of those answers. Next, again, they were not in any specific order. Because I felt if I put it in order, I would destroy it for you. Because if I gave it to you in an order, you would try to mimic that order. And I said not everybody would do everything, so you need to pick and choose as it is. But there are certain things to do in certain orders. Obviously, we don't want to tarp the field and then compost it. So I, I assume that anybody listening to this show that doesn't tune out has enough common sense to figure that out. 
You figure out the order, the timing, and the rotations, etc., that you want to do based on your climate, your goals, your soil, your garden size, your need, your time availability, the labor that you are willing to invest, etc. Okay. Uh, next, no one, again, we'll do all of them. No one's going to do them all. But everybody should do several of them. You should not do what I did when I was a, a 12, 13-year-old, 14-year-old kid helping my grandfather. You should not do nothing. You will only either have to work harder for piss-poor results compared to what you could have had, or you'll get tired of it and you'll quit growing your food and you'll quit gardening. A lot of people that I talk to, when they say, I used to garden, but it got to be too much work. When I actually talk to them, the number one thing that made it too much work was not maintaining gardens through the winter, even when they didn't know that. Because it always said, you know, by midsummer, there were just weeds everywhere. Well, by midsummer, all your plants should be up really high, and weeds should be a, a minor consideration. I don't pull weeds, unless it's a weed that just, like, that came out really easily. If I see a plant that I consider a weed, and I pull on it and it doesn't want to come out, I either just break it off at the, at the root level, and if it's a plant that doesn't want to break off at the root level, I take one of my rice knives or my, my Turkish pruning knife or whatever, and, and I prune it off. I throw it in a bucket, and then I go to the, when I, next time I go out to the chicken duck house, I drop it in the compost pit. Or if it's like just one and it's not going to have any seeds or anything on it, I just drop it on the ground and let it soil right there. Chop and drop. I don't worry about it. It's going to grow back. I hope so. I hope so. Then I get more chicken food or compost. I'm okay with that as long as it doesn't get out of hand. It ain't going to choke out a pepper plant that's two foot tall, is it? It's not going to choke out my sweet potato vines that have completely covered the bed where you can't even see the mulch anymore. It's not going to choke out the, the, the squash that has squash on it as big as my bicep, is it? I mean, you see what I mean? So the summer weeding, when it is out of hand, is generally because the weeds survived the winter and the weeds grew faster in the spring and they outgrew the plants. And now you're trying to keep up. If we suppress those weeds in winter and we get the plants off to a faster start, the weeds that do pop up in the summer are much more easy to manage. So almost every person I've ever talked to didn't do at least a few of these things, and this is why they have to work so hard. Because I had to work so hard, and when you're, you know, when you're a, a, an 80-year-old man pointing and making a 12-year-old kid work, it's pretty easy to do. Get on down there and do it, or you ain't getting no money this week. Okay, Papa, and down I went. All right, easy. When you got to do it yourself, that shit's work. Trust me, I remember. And I would have went out, spent my own money, bought my own tarps, and done all that because I can think of how much fishing I could have done instead of digging garden beds every year. Because there was a bunch of them, and they were long, and they were wide, and they were big. And it was not an option. We gardened for food. Next, winter is coming. It always does. That's a quote from me from like 12 years ago. Winter is coming. It always does. But here's the addition for today's show. You don't control that, but you control what you do with it. When I said it the first time, I was talking about preparing for it, making sure you're ready for winter, whether that winter is the seasonal winter or the winters that we prep for in you know our lives. There's many winters in lives, not just the seasonal ones. When we think of winter as a time of darkness and a time of scarcity, when a tornado blows your house down, it's a winter. It's a life winter. So I was talking about it that way. Now I'm talking about the seasonal winter. And instead of preparing for it, I'm talking about harnessing it and using it. It is a time 
where it is cold, dark, and wet. That's winter. You say, give me three words to describe winter, and as long as we're not in the tropics, and I would still say it's cool and wet, but in temperate climates, cold, dark, wet. Do you know what that's good for? Growing microorganisms. That is nirvana for microorganisms. Cool, dark, and wet. Now, I know a lot of them like warm, but when it comes to breaking things down, fungal, etc., cool, dark, and wet. It's a golden period of time. Wet is the big thing. You have, in most climates, two distinct seasons, and they may be in four phases, like comes, goes, comes, might be like A, B, B, A, or something, or A, B, A, B, like that. But it is, you either have a time where uh, precipitation exceeds evaporation or evaporation exceeds precipitation. In other words, the rain either exceeds how quickly it evaporates or it doesn't. If it exceeds evaporation, you stay moist consistently. You don't dry out and wet up, dry out and wet up, dry out and wet up. In Texas, where I live, our period of that is actually pretty pretty narrow. It's it is, it is kind of an A B A B thing. It starts about right now. The temperature's right, but we haven't gotten the fall rains yet. We got like one or two, and it hadn't rained in weeks, and it didn't go rain for weeks. I'm sure I'll tell you when it's going to rain. TSP 2020 workshop, promise you, it's going to rain by then. But once the rains start for our fall and winter, we go into a period. We'll generally hit some period like in March where it'll stop raining. It'll dry up, and then it'll come back in April, May, and then it'll dry up again. And it is those periods where we don't have to irrigate, and the ground never goes fully dry, that we have the greatest opportunity to grow soil. And that's why winter becomes an opportunity instead of a problem. If we choose to control what we do with it, instead of pretending that we don't have any control just because it's coming whether we want it to or not. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, then one really cool way that you can help me help you by being here for you for a long time to come is by doing what? Your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you will help the Survival Podcast no matter what you eventually buy. And boy, do I have a deal for you today. It's Prime Day, Prime Days or something like that this week at Amazon, and boy, the deals are coming. We had the DeWalt deals earlier in the week, Monday and Tuesday. Excalibur has a deal for you. And I'll tell you, how are DeWalt and Excalibur alike? They both make tools in a way, but a drill and a dehydrator are not the same. The way they're alike is they are very brand conscious and they don't discount their shit often. Not often at all. And when they do, it's brief and you either get it or you wait another you know six months to a year or more before you get it again. That's what they're doing today with the nine caliber uh, Excalibur nine tray dehydrator, uh, the 3926. It's like a top of the line dehydrator. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes to dehydrators, unless we're going like commercial product. We're going consumer product. You got Excalibur and then everybody else as a distant second. And then you got all the crap that's a distant third. I don't even recommend you consider buying anything else. And today I'm recommending that if you've been waiting to buy an Excalibur, you buy one today. 
because the 3926 that normally sells for $295 is on sale for $189.99. It's a hundred, what, 105 bucks off. And the last time this happened was February this year. The last time it happened before that was June of 2019. It doesn't happen often. And my write-up on this, I, I try with my item of the day reviews to give you as much information as possible so you can make the best decision for yourself. And if you are like, I need a dehydrator right now, Jack, and they weren't on sale, the two items I would look at is the 3926 and the 2900. The 2900 has a few things about it that make it not quite as good as the 3926, but it's damn good. It has a five-year warranty versus a ten-year warranty. Generally, it will save you almost $100. I think it's worth saving $100. The 2900 is $219 retail. It's on sale right now for uh, $200, $199. That's $20 off. But the better one is on sale for $189. The better one, the one that usually sells for almost $100 more, is selling for $10 less than the sale price on the cheaper one. This doesn't happen often. And I bet you, if you check, there's other retailers that have it on sale right now, too, because Excalibur's that company that tells their channel partners, thou shall not put this on sale except when we say you may. They're very brand and conscious of, of their, their underlying value. They don't want to discount their brand. So when they go on sale, it, I'm not saying everybody needs a dehydrator. I'm saying if you do, and you've been like, I need to get one, I'm telling you, you don't think that this is going to come back around right before Christmas. They're not that, it might, but they're not the company that you can count on to do that. Again, I looked at the pricing history today. The last time this was this cheap was in February, and the time before that was June of the year before. So, you have been warned. And remember, if you were on the Telegram channel, you would have already known this, and if it sold out by the time you're hearing this, or the sale went away by the time you're hearing this, you would have known. So get on the Telegram channel. What you want to do, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social, and you'll see all the ways you can stay in touch with us. But the Telegram channel is the guaranteed way that when I put something out, the second I put it out, the next thing I do is I put it on the Telegram channel. It won't be like the Telegram groups where you're going to hear from a 100 different people. You only hear from me a few times a day, and you probably won't hear from me at all during weekends. You can do the email list, too. That's really great. That's what most people have done up till now. Um, and I send that every day, but I only send one email a day. So I don't send that email about the item of the day. It's usually done at 9 o'clock in the morning until the show is live and everything else is done. That's usually about 3 o'clock in the afternoon most days. Some days when a badass deal like this comes out, and by the time I do the show, it's sold out and it's gone. It happens. So the Telegram channel is this great, easy way. It comes right to your mobile device or your PC or your Mac, and instantaneously you know and you stay in touch with me. And sometimes little back-channel things that you wouldn't know otherwise, I put that on Telegram too. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and also remind you you can become a member. Become a member. Support the show best way possible. 50 bucks a year, 18.9 cents an episode. Get a bunch of discounts. Get your money back. Really, really good. And now... Let's go to our song of the day. And like I said, we are at what I call the crossroads year. And I'm going to say more on the entirety of, of that concept uh, tomorrow as we finish with our top five country songs of the year 1980. But like I said, this is kind of a sandwich of the old guard and the new guard. And yesterday, Alabama, which was really to me the band 
that changed country music without ruining it, <laughs> the way some modern artists seem to have done in the last few years. Um, this is way back 40 years ago. They popped up and brought that classic rock sound. But we've had very much kind of the old guard represented until we got to Alabama yesterday. I mean, first we had Kenny Rogers, then we had Don Williams, then we had Alabama. I mean, that is that is a definite change. Today, we go back to the old guard. About as old guard as it gets. Willie Nelson. I mean, for Willie's generation, which I would say is the after Hank Sr. generation, that change. Willie was, as, to me, as big as it gets. Willie and Johnny and Waylon, right? Those were your three huge names. And in 1980, he released a song that shot straight to the top of the country car, uh, charts for good reason. It's still one of probably most people's favorite songs today, especially when somebody's like picking up a guitar and playing around a campfire and people are singing along together. On the road again. On the road again. I still love this song. I still love a lot of the old Willie Nelson music too. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. Life I love is making music with my friends And I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Oh,